Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. In a change to the normal introduction, I want today to ask you a favour. The podcast has gained a very loyal following, with downloads and listeners well above average, and it's even been added to the National Sound Archive at the British Library. It would be wonderful if more people got to hear about the podcast, and you can help by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Over 42% of all of the 27,000 downloads so far have come from Apple, and leaving a rating and review there really helps the podcast gain traction and visibility, and really helps it reach a wider and bigger audience. I would appreciate your help, and thank you for being such loyal listeners. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who was born and studied in New Zealand before leaving to study in America. Her career has seen her conduct all over the world and led her to have title positions in both the US and Canada. Since making this interview, she has won the Sir George Schulte Conducting Award for 2021. It's a real pleasure to welcome Gemma New. Gemma, it's lovely to speak to you today. Oh, it's amazing to speak to you too, Mike. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, especially because we're on the opposite sides of the world as uh, as I speak to you today. You're in New Zealand, I'm in the UK, um, so there's a 12 or 13 hour time difference. And uh, not only that, for listeners later on when this uh, episode is released, it's bonfire night. So if you hear f- um, fireworks going off in the background, it's bonfire night or Guy Fawkes night in the UK. So uh, Gemma, if you hear lots of banging going on, I'm not being attacked. It's just people outside letting off fireworks. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I'll ask the first very English question. How's mm. the weather there? Uh, it's okay. Um, it's just getting cold. That's all. It's getting very wintry and uh it's a lot more depressing to be for today's the first day of the second lockdown so it's a, a lot more depressing to be inside than it was the first time which was march and we had unseasonably hot weather so um yeah maybe being oh, in, yeah being inside might be a bit tougher this time we'll see well i hope <laughs> it passes quickly we're going into summer so i've got a lovely view of the airport i'm in the quarantine Um, airport hotel in Christchurch. (laughs) That sounds so romantic. (laughs) Um, Well, perfect timing then if you're in quarantine for me to ask you all sorts of things such as music. When did it first come into your life? Are you, I think I read somewhere that you're from quite a musical family. Um, Was it predestined that you would go into music or was it something that you sort of wandered into? It's something that I definitely wanted to do for myself. Um, my mum plays violin and she still plays as a keen amateur musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was five years old, I started playing the violin as well and uh, playing in orchestras. Uh, when I first got the opportunity to do that when I was nine, I just fell in love with orchestral music and the yeah. concept of an orchestra, that community feeling and uh, just all of the narratives and, and the characters that come out of the music. I was fascinated with it from the get go. And, uh, and then, yeah, my dad is an actuary. Uh, so uh, I was also very interested in mathematics and um, physics. Uh, and I did continue with that when I went to university, did a double degree for at least four years and and then music it, it, it became clear that that was the path I was going to take you've already said a sentence that always gets me thinking because I used to be a violinist as well I was a professional for 23 years um before I went to conducting I realized awesome. quite recently that actually 
the violin was my way into the thing that I actually loved, the orchestra. I'm not, I mean, I, you know, I love playing the violin, but I never, I never thought of it as the be all and end all. I thought orchestra, eventually I've realized that orchestras were the thing I was really in love with. Were you much the same uh, in hindsight, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I, I didn't really like playing by myself so much um, publicly speaking, when you had a performance, I always loved it being a team effort and orchestra definitely landed uh, towards that. Um, and I think the violin is such a crucial part of the orchestra. We get to play, you know, the melody and or like almost all the time when we're in the first violin part. And then when we're in the second violins, uh, we get that beautiful middle writing mm. accompaniment, that support. Uh, and, and so I just became fascinated with how the parts were all put together. And uh, as I got the opportunity to conduct when I was at high school, and, and, and that's when I realized I really wanted to pursue conducting if it was possible. Yeah, you're right about, I mean, I was a second fiddle player for 23 years. And how composers write for the violins. Personally, I, I found it fascinating then, and I think it's a real bonus that I was a fiddle player when I come to look at a score and learn scores because I, I'm a string player. I never understand how people who have never even had a lesson on a string player can talk to the strings in an orchestra. Do you think the same? Well, you know, it's, it, I'm sure they have other um, experiences that help them have this leadership role. But you're right. I mean, half of the orchestra or even more than that often is the string section. And uh, there's a certain, uh, I think, maybe uh, psychology of the string player. And, uh, you know, you have that uh, maybe safety in numbers at times and, uh -huh. and the idea yeah. of you know, uh, um, just just a way, a language of communicate, you know, a communication that mm. is um, uh, string speak. And it does help a lot to be able to uh, communicate to strings, just knowing that that's the way they feel most comfortable. Um, whereas perhaps with a, a woodwind section or a brass section, um, you need to give more of a general comment, uh, something that gives a character or a scene and they will use their own um, you know prowess on their instruments to make that happen whereas with strings I think you need to be a lot more specific about where in the bow it is and and why that really matters you know and uh, where things may tend to rush um, it, having that knowledge from playing a string uh, a string instrument I think it really helps. Moving on, you, you studied higher education in New Zealand, um, Wellington first, and then Christchurch, uh, University of Canterbury as well. And I read that you conducted uh, the Christchurch Youth Orchestra when you were only 19 years old, which is an amazing thing to do. How did that come about? How did it start? Were you already uh, having lessons with anybody or was it just something that you were doing literally off your own bat? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I first, I mean, I might backtrack a little bit. I yeah, got yeah. the first opportunity to conduct when I was 15. Oh, great. I was at high school. Um, there were a lot of orchestras and music groups um, at my school. And um, so I think the teacher saw that I was really interested. I was a um, concert master and um, a teacher was leaving. So we made a performance for her uh, and you know, just from that first moment of conducting, I thought I'm so fascinated with the way the lines come together and um, how uh, the, the communication and rehearsal brings this piece alive. And, and so um, I, I was 
sure that I wanted to investigate a career yeah. in conducting. And um, the school was very supportive. So we actually started an orchestra there um, that very year. And I had two years of conducting a, uh, an orchestra at the high school and then when I started at university there was also a supportive teacher in Wellington who said when I transferred to Christchurch you know call the conductor of the youth orchestra um, Rupert Bond he's uh, a friend of mine and he's really great um, so I did and I said can I watch your rehearsals and I, I went and he said uh, you know can you conduct the beginning of Brahms 4 and I did and mm. and actually two weeks later he um he called and he said, I, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going back to the UK. Um, I, I need to go back um, suddenly. And I, I've suggested to their uh, management that uh, you should be considered for, for the role of conductors. So um, that happened very suddenly. Um, wow, and yeah. luckily, I think they had a... Um, they were quite smart. I think they had a conductor in Australia who would come um, a little later in the rehearsal period uh. who would then conduct the second half of the concerts. Uh, but I would do the preliminary rehearsals and then the first half of the concert. Um, and he was a really great mentor for me. Brian Buggy uh, was his name. And and then the Christchurch Symphony was also really supportive of Tom Woods, their, their music director. I said again, can I watch your rehearsals? He said, sure thing. Uh, it happened to be um, El Trovatore. And on the second day, they said, uh, we need a conductor for these rehearsals because we've double booked the <laughs> orchestra rehearsals with the staging do you know this opera? And I spent uh, three days learning the opera, uh, didn't get much sleep, uh, and then uh, just conducted. And, and he allowed me to be his assistant for all the time until I went to the United States. Wow. I mean, that's that's amazing. But well, it's not amazing because, you know, there are so many nice people out there who will let you come and watch rehearsals. But then what is amazing is that they gave you a chance so so quickly and so eagerly, you know, not every person is like that and I think you know you were so lucky to find such kind and generous people and also as you said um you know be in the right place at the right time when one of them went back to the UK and then you know you you got a double booking but isn't that wonderful that they they were willing to nurture um potential at that stage I was absolutely blown away I mean they I'm so grateful that they um just I, I maybe believed in me a little bit and also you know just supported me they took so much time out of their schedule to go over conducting technique and score study and uh yeah I really want to pass it on when I have the opportunity because uh, it changed my life literally You just mentioned going to and leaving and going to the United States, and you studied um, at the Peabody Institute. And I've read that you you named two conducting teachers there. Neither name has appeared on the podcast, I believe, so far. So I'm really interested to know what you learned from Gustav Meyer and Mark and Thakar, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, two teachers I don't know anything about. Were you taught by them at the same time, concurrently, alongside each other? And was one of them very much into stick technique uh, and the other one into score study or was it an overall holistic approach? How did they go about it? 
I thought both of the teachers were absolutely stellar. Um, mm. And so Gustav Meyer did two thirds of the classes, Mark Anthaker did one third, and they were completely opposites. Right. I mean, in the way that they uh, believed uh, in the philosophy of music and also uh, conducting technique, which I found incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like uh, conducting you have to have a little toolbox and you uh, keep adding uh, tools of communication. Uh, if, and so both of these um, philosophies of conducting technique have, I've been able to pull out of that toolbox uh, mm. at different times for when it's needed. Um, so Gustav Meyer believed that uh, you must show everything. And yeah. Mark Anthaker was like, you must be the music, don't show it. So huh. um, already you have something incredibly different. Uh, Gustav yeah. Meyer said, uh, the ictus is incredibly vital. Always, there must be an ictus, uh, uh, well, not always, but you know, a lot. And mm. um, Mark Ant was said the opposite. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, uh, it was wonderful. You know, with Gustav Meyer, we would get there um, prepared with three symphonies and two overtures and with Mark Ant, he wanted you to have one movement and have memorized it. And if yeah. you hadn't memorized the music that you'd prepared for Mark Ant, he would uh, close your score. <laughs> and if you were then flailing a little bit, he would say, how long is it going to take you to learn this piece? <laughs> Half an hour, an hour, go and learn it. And, and, I thought that was a valuable lesson. You know, uh, we have, we, we learn, it's going to take a lifetime to learn this repertoire yeah. um, and to go deeper and deeper in the layers. Um, but when you're under pressure, you have to know how, what is most vital and what is important to the, the rehearsal time to be efficient with that um, and, and what to prioritize in the score, what mm. you, you really need to know and what you need to make a decision about. And um, I thought he was helpful with that. But then, with Meyer, he said it takes um, an hour a page to learn wow. a score. Wow. And so you'd go into this micro detail of every single note. What does it mean and how to show it? Uh, and that was also incredibly important. And so when you have those three symphonies and two overtures and you've had a week to prepare them, um, he changes the repertoire every week. Huh. Um, you would get there and... Um, most people, when he said, oh, who wants to start? You put your hand up immediately because you know at least you're going to start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> because otherwise he'd just go, all right, let's swap now. It just randomly in any piece. And, and you'd have to be ready to get into the zone and to have uh, a, a good opinion about that, that part of it. Um, so, yeah, it was incredibly valuable. You, uh, you mentioned one word. And the minute you mentioned it, I remembered that I'd read his book, Gustav Meyer's book. I can't remember what it's called because I'm not going to get up out of my chair and look and see what it's called. But the word ictus immediately made me remember, yes, I've read that book. Can you explain to the listeners what he means by ictus? Um, because to me, it, it, it's not a, an everyday word. Um, what did he mean by that? Well, I mean, it's an impulse um, and it's a preparation for the orchestra yeah. before the actual uh, time that they play and um, it's 
I, I would say it's almost like an electric shock. It's got to be quite vigorous and, and, um, and it gives a lot of preparation and breath for the player to then know exactly when it comes back down where that point is going to be mm, yeah. in time so that they know when to play. Yeah, he, spend, he spends a lot of time in the book talking about it. Uh, but the, the one thing I didn't get out of the book was, or I didn't remember was um, spending an hour a page uh, I mean, you know, you would hope that if you get three symphonies, two overtures and a concerto, whatever you just said, you would hope that one of them wasn't a sort of, you know, 60 or 70 minute um, massive, you know, Shostakovich symphony that you've got to spend an hour a page on. Uh, because uh, there ain't enough time in the week to learn that. Um, how did it's, you manage that? very overwhelming. It's yeah, very bet. overwhelming. I mean, I... I I would go to bed at 3 a.m. regularly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did work incredibly hard um, beginning and he um, shows how to, you know, structure helps a lot because yeah. especially if something's in sonata form, for example, you, you look at one phrase and you analyze it and then you see when, you know, a similar phrase or the theme returns and what the differences are. And mm. that helps you remember and and those those contrasts um, maybe bring it to a more natural understanding of, of the journey that it's taking, no matter what piece it is. Um, but he also said an interesting point that um, ninety percent of the time, when something goes wrong in the music in the orchestra while they're playing the music, um, it's your fault. <laughs> and um, that also it, it was a a wonderful, it's a, you know, obviously a negative way of thinking, but it also brings up a lot of questions which we can then unfold and and find ways to solve problems which yeah. i i do enjoy yeah um i'm going to go slightly off the beaten track here because as i said and uh, dear listeners i do do my homework i happen to watch uh, a short film uh, or an interview that you that was made about you or with you and it talked about the fact that, as you said, you also did a double or triple major and you were doing maths and physics. And um, it talked about the fact that you use algebra sometimes to learn and, and remember scores. Um, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, so to me that blows my mind that you would use algebra. But how, do you still use that a lot um, now in score studies? And, and how do you think it's helped you? Um, I think you, you mentioned that it was to do with memorising things. Um, uh, how, how do you think do you still use your maths training now? So, I mean, algebra is just a way of um, explaining things and mm. it could explain anything really in the world if you just um, put things uh, relative to other things, right? So mm. um, for me, uh, I've found especially proof theory, which is the way of um, proving something through logic. Um, the way that they use algebra, especially with that, I found that incredibly uh, helpful because it goes line by line. You just go down, down the, uh, the page um, saying, you know, you start with a statement, the oboe is playing and, um, you know, but what is going on? Why is it there? How are we going to uh, fix any problems that might happen or what decisions are we going to make for this? What are the possible decisions and what is the one that you're going to start with? And what might be your plan B and C? So um, there's, I mean, a lot of logical um, analysis that one does anyway with um, score study. 
and no matter who you are. And then um, I think writing it down for me always helps uh, me internalize it. So mm-hmm. um, when I use um, algebra, I'm just shorthanding it um, and I guess laying it out on a page, which is similar to proof theory, but it's just making it look presentable visually, something that I can um, then, yeah, naturalize in my own body and understanding and go, yes, that's that's how the piece goes. That makes sense to me. And then it helps me memorize it. Well, I may well come back to that when I come to the, the, the question I ask every conductor, which is how they learn a score and, and whether they mark things in. So I shall uh, file that away and ask again, you know, how whether you, you add certain things in when you come to learn score. While we're still at Peabody, um, you founded the Lunar Ensemble, which um, I believe was a, a mainly contemporary music ensemble. Starting an ensemble, it's a big undertaking, um, but it's definitely a way of making sure that you conduct more. Do, did you, from the start, want to concentrate on contemporary music? And, uh, and did, how much help did you get from other people as well? Well, I, I always think any orchestra and ensemble is a team effort, and mm. this definitely was. The Lunar Ensemble was a group that um, I co-founded with other um, Peabody musicians, Peabody students. Um, and we first off just really wanted to play Piero Lunaire, and we ended up performing it 10 times <laughs> in our six seasons. Um, and we also, you know, there's a whole lot of other poems that are linked that Schoenberg didn't choose for mm. his um, Piero Lunaire. So we uh, asked composers to then um, write music for these other poems, and it happened to be in the anniversary of Piero Lunaire's com- um, composing, so um, uh, 100 years. So that was... Uh, it just worked out very nicely and we were able to um, collaborate with uh, quite a few universities around uh, the USA and uh, and it was very exciting. Um, we also did L'Histoire du Soldat um, and some uh, contemporary compositions that were of the same instrumentation. Mm. Um, and uh, I really like working with composers because you can always ask them questions what did you mean here and you know what message are you trying to give this audience and it's always fascinating the way they have their own unique personal language um and it's uh, there's always something new that um uh, i i love uh, especially when someone has a very unique style uh, it it brings a whole new world, a sound, a whole new sound world. Um, and, and I find that really inspiring. Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, just this music is music of our time and yeah. it's very relevant mm. to our society and today. So I, I think it's incredibly important, um, but it's actually really moving um, mm. for me and for our audiences to hear this music of our time because it touches our lives. Wouldn't it be nice to go back and ask Brahms or Bruckner what they thought? <laughs> I've often thought that. I mean, when I would, you know, don't do I know. music. What did you yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely? I mean, that as you say, it's a bonus of of working with you know composers who are with you and you're pouring over their score with them. You know, it's oh, it's such a bonus. Yeah, the amount of times I've wished I could just get on the phone and ask Beethoven, "What did you mean here?" You know, and by the way, did your metronome work or not? Um, <laughs> and other such questions. At this point, Gemma asked me a question, 
a question that stemmed from something she'd been told at Peabody by one of her teachers about phrasing and how to shape a phrase in all music. The question was quite tricky, and if you want to hear my answer, as well as a short discussion we had about phrasing, spontaneity in performance, and freedom through rehearsing, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus companion mini-episode. To hear that discussion, as well as all of the previous bonus mini-episodes, let alone all of the other things to be gained by subscribing that you've already heard about in the introduction, please head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and for just £5 a month you gain access to a treasure trove of content. Details are in the show notes below and it's quick and easy to join. Now, back to the interview. You leave Peabody in 2011 and immediately or around the same time in 2011 you become assistant of the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. Um, assistant conductor jobs. I on here have said that I think they're wonderful things, um, especially if you're you have a relationship with a music director. You're not just making cups of coffee and putting the Boeing's in. That you sit in rehearsals. You're an absorbent sponge. How was that time for you? You were there five years at New Jersey Symphony Orchestra. I had a wonderful time with the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra musicians and also their music director, Jacques Lacombe, who was uh, a conductor I met in New Zealand uh, when he conducted the National Youth Orchestra. And um, I tapped him on the shoulder very shyly one time and said, can I look over some scores and uh, with you? Uh, I have a very specific questions. So I'll take maybe five minutes of your time. And he said, sure. Um, we never actually got to do that. But the next day he said, oh, you know, I want to sit in the hall and listen to the balance. Does anyone conduct? And uh, my friends were like, Gemma, go on. So um, I got to conduct um, Firebird and, and a, a bit of all the pieces um, as we toured the country for sound checks. And he was yeah. incredibly supportive in um, writing a letter of support for me to go to Peabody and then he became music director of the New Jersey Symphony. Um, I started covering while I was still um, studying at Peabody. I would go up for a week at a time, um, uh, you know, just a little bit as, as was allowed and then um, the, the job opened up as assistant conductor and I did the audition and it did go well and um, I had a wonderful time with this NJSO family. Uh, the musicians are so generous and thoughtful and sweet and kind and um, and also incredibly good. You know, I, I loved yeah. the orchestra. It was amazing, uh, like, responsibility, and it was an honor. Um, and so, you know, the orchestra travels a lot. We would always go on a bus f- for hours at a time together, and we would eat meals together. So I did become very close with them. Um, and, yeah, musically speaking, wow, I mean, there was a lot of repertoire that we went through and I would make notes for myself as I was in the hall. I would observe everything and take note uh, in shorthand in my own score. Um, and and then I would, uh, Jacques was always asking what the balance was and, and we would talk about, um, you know, what, where the tricky sections were and, and things like that. So it was, it was also really helpful for that critical um, analysis of, of okay, we start with this first rehearsal and um, what do we observe and then how do we make things better? I think, uh, I've said it before, but I think, you know, um, unless you spend a lot of time, as I did as a player inside an orchestra, um, the best way 
of learning what an orchestra is like is to be an assistant and as you say join the family get on a bus get in a, a coffee queue have meals with them ask them the questions that you know you're not going to get the answers to at your university or at your music college um and you know i've even had conductors on here of won prestigious competitions and then but then gone on to just be an assistant um when they could have you know gone and travel the world having been a competition winner i think it's it's such an amazing uh way of doing it and uh, any for any young conductor um it's 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 yeah it's the best thing i think personally and also what's really great as well is that you have to do a lot of family and education programs yeah, and i'm yeah. saying that because you have to speak to the audience and engage a whole bunch of young people and also um, you have to quickly go from one piece to another because they're only five minutes long these pieces and they're all different tempos all different <laughs> yeah. styles and yeah. that's really great training yeah some of the hardest concerts you ever have to conduct are those family or schools concerts as you said because you know you could do 12 pieces of different genres uh, all full of little corners to conduct starts and stops and yeah you by the time you you stop being insistent and you get an overture a concerto and a symphony it feels really rather easy to some degree <laughs> don't you agree yeah absolutely yeah. and pops is like that as well i mean yeah. when you try yeah. to um uh, ha you know you have all these short pieces and you have to get through them all within that two and a half hour rehearsal and there's only one rehearsal on the day you know there's a lot of pressure in that uh, a lot of moving parts and something could go bananas quite easily with the piano keyboard not with the software not working or the singer uh, you know the mics aren't working or something you know the movie's not working so um <laughs> you know it, it also encourages patience yeah it certainly does uh, i think we've all been there um during that that five-year period you did also spend um one year doing the dudamel conducting fellow at the los angeles phil um who did you get to assist or and view whilst you were doing that? Uh, and when you came to work with Gustavo Dudamel, uh, what was the programme? And, and 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 was it a good year? I mean, you know, I, I think you only go two or three times, don't you? But how was it for you? Yeah, so um, with, I, I, with the New Jersey Symphony, I, I do want to point out, because I think this is actually quite unusual, for North American orchestras at the moment, um, they were incredibly flexible with, yeah. uh, you know, if I said LA just called and I, it's coming up in a week's time. This is what happened when I first got invited to be a cover conductor. It's happening in a week's time. It's an amazing opportunity. Would you mind if I stepped out of assisting for a week with the New Jersey Symphony? And they said, yes, absolutely. But uh -huh. I do feel like with some other assistant roles in, in North America, they, they would say, no, you have to be there three out of the four uh, mm. weeks per month. And, and it, I think it restricts a lot of um, young conductors from just taking these opportunities. So um, mm. I'm grateful to NJSO for that. But so actually, yeah, I had a year of covering the LA Phil and I did it a lot because I had this flexibility um, and then did a year of the Dudamel Fellowship and then I actually continued to cover in the year after uh, about four months no sorry probably three months of the year um, mm. I was in LA and so um, every year it was awesome I mean Hollywood Bowl in the summer what Disney Concert Hall um, they gave me 
I think nine concerts of, of these different programs. And there was very interesting, very involved um, programs, including film and young composers and uh, new music and, and uh, the New World Symphony and, and things like that. And then, yes, there was um, Gustavo Dudamel, who I was able to assist a lot. I think it did maybe 18 weeks with him over wow. three years. Um, and then Isapeka uh, uh, Salonen and also uh, John Adams. Um, I, I really uh, respect and admire all three of them. Um, and also some really, really great guest conductors who who came through I was able to make that week and and it made all the difference there was a lot of repertoire that we went through especially um, in the Hollywood Bowl season I, mm. I think they do two to three programs per week and um, you have to be ready and and that was very exciting well that is that's the big thing isn't it two or three programs a week you're talking to somebody who lives in the UK I know all about that or we do and sometimes four programs um, looking ahead um, just after all of this, or maybe before it all finished, you, I, I see a lot of air miles coming up. Is what all I'll say is the, the fact that um, you you become music or you're named as music director of the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra back home um, in 2015, starting in 16 and going through till 2021. But then you know you've got resident conductor in St Louis uh, and also principal guest conductor of Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Um, how how were New Jersey and LA with you going back to New Zealand? And now you're music director in New Zealand. How are, how are the, you know, I suppose you have to manage your time very carefully and think, well, you know, I've got to, I'll probably do a patch in America for a month and then come back to New Zealand for a month. And how does it work um, at the moment? Because, you know, as I said, yeah, you must have one hell of an air miles account. <laughs> Well, you pick up on quite a humorous point because um, <laughs> there is a city in in New Zealand that mm. is called Hamilton. Ah. Uh, the, the musical Hamilton yes. in New York City. Yeah. And then there is the Hamilton Philharmonic in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada, ah. which is just outside of Toronto. And that's where I'm music director. Oh, well, in that case, I should have done, I should have pressed the link on Wikipedia. I just naturally assumed it was the one back home. I put New Zealand and Hamilton together and came up with five rather than four, didn't I? <laughs> no, it's all right. In America, I often get people yeah. thinking I, I do the Broadway musical. So, oh, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, no, I hadn't gone down that road. Definitely not. Um, oh, well, in that case, well, still, I would imagine you, you know, as I'm speaking to you right now in New Zealand there are still some air miles to be done but um so yeah you're in Canada I shall leave all of this in uh make myself look an absolute fool uh <laughs> <laughs> not at all not at all I think it's quite funny <laughs> well um, it does yeah, lead no, a lot of travel involved for sure. yeah it does lead on to another point though that because you know if you look at your biography on your website or anywhere else you do um travel around anyway and and what I really wanted to to ask you was about you know you're lucky enough to have your job in Hamilton, Ontario, um, and and your jobs uh, your job in Dallas. But you do work in Europe, and you do work uh, in lots and uh, lots of other places. And you've done a lot of first dates, and it's a subject that comes up periodically on here about how you cope with first dates, especially if you've had to travel a long way to get there. And um, do you have a strategy? Uh, how have you got on with first dates uh, i mean it's 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 part of what we do we all enjoy them 
But, um, you know, are you, like me, still nervous as you walk into the hall for the first time? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's so different from a long-term relationship with an orchestra, as yeah. you say. I mean, I feel St. Louis, Dallas, Hamilton, and in the past, obviously, New Jersey, L.A., you create a family and there's support and trust built over many weeks of working together and success as well. So, um, and also I think, especially as music director, you have this artistic vision that you plan with your team and you see it realized. Um, It's incredibly satisfying work. With a new beginning, you're meeting a new friend for the first time, a new organization. Mm. And you, no matter who you've talked to uh, about the orchestra beforehand, uh, you, you don't really know exactly what you're getting into. Um, uh, and so I just, I come with uh, being as prepared as possible with the music at hand and with an open um mind um, and and a very positive outlook and I listen very carefully especially in the first rehearsal and I try to be maybe even overly clear in the first rehearsal uh, in certain passages to make people feel a little bit okay I can rely on her for that or you know things like that but also to as I said when you're listening you don't want to necessarily be in the way because Mm. you're hearing the voice of the orchestra and their style and you know some orchestras you go and you're like wow that is a tradition right there Mm. and what I had in mind with this piece is not possibly going to work for for (laughs) for this but luckily I have thought about 10 different options of how it could go and I'm going to go to this next plan Mm. Um, so definitely it's taking it all in and it's always a conversation between the players and yourself not always in words obviously it's with more subtle communications and and hopefully over the week if you focus on the music at hand and the task that we have as a team it rises to the top and and we find that we have very satisfying performance and on the on the day of the concert Mm. Well, yeah you you basically encapsulated how I think uh, personally um and you know, it's that going in there, you put the first beat down, you don't know what's going to come at you, and you're probably listening harder then than you do at certain points later in the week, even, you know, because you you want to know how they respond. Um, and, and, and you mentioned tools as a conductor. It can be verbal tools to get what you want. It can be a gesture that you think, well, I, I would normally use this gesture. That didn't work. Right, I'll see if what else I've got in the tool bag, whether I can, you know. And, and it's being alive, isn't it? It's being alive to all of the situations, listening, uh, reacting. Um, and the one thing for me is being myself. I'm, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I'd just be me. Um, and, you know, and, but whilst listening very hard. Yes, absolutely. No pretenses. No you know (laughs) we love music that's why we're there and that's a very good reason to 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 perform and to to be musician and and you know we're working as hard as we possibly can to do the best job possible so i i think that if you if you come prepared uh you're you're on the the good foot Earlier on, we were 
discussing about uh, learning scores and uh, the fact that you use algebra, it may or may not be part of the answer that's the, the, to the next question. I ask every conductor this, when you come to learn a new score, do you have a set method? Uh, do you just sit down uh, at your desk and start a page one or work your way through? Do you stick to Gustav Meyer's uh, an hour a page? Um, or do you look at it a much bigger picture and, and zero in on certain details? And when you learn a score or when you uh, go through this process, are you like me, somebody who scribbles lots of ideas, thoughts in and thing and I use you know red blue and black or are you like about 50% of the other conductors I've interviewed are you one of those people who just remembers it and doesn't write anything in what's your usual modus operandi yeah I um my score is very meticulously marked mm. and I have a a really uh specific system of marking up the score um, and it's it's not that you just have to mark it up. Uh, there's so much more involved with it, and, and yeah. that brings an understanding for me, and and brings me to uh, you know decisions and and things like that. So um, yeah, and I use color. Um, obviously, first I start with pencil, and I, right. I I look at the structure, I look at the harmony of the instrumentation, I make sure the score is. Um, is it, it ha I usually put say it, I mean it depends on what the piece is but like uh, I mark it so that I can do some really quick referencing in rehearsal in terms of like very simple things like bar, bar numbers transpositions uh, um, meters uh, tempos and movements and where in the movement if it's sonata form or something or another form um, and then um, I also write in a lot of notes um, of the character um, of the phrase shape um, with dynamics, I put them in a dark blue. Um, main cues are in a deep red. Secondary cues are in a light in an orange. Mm. Uh, main lines are filled with yellow. Baseline or rhythmic unit, fastest rhythmic unit or percussive is a light green. Uh, light blue is either a third line of, of a counter melody or. Um, or it's if if it's not a filled filled out part, it's it's an edit that I've mm. made, uh, a conscious decision that isn't printed in the score, but I've made a decision that this note is staccato, for example, and it's previously been a long tenuto line. I will put that in a in a light blue so that I know I've made that decision. It's not the score, mm. um, and. Uh, so I use a lot of colors, um, but obviously I don't use them all the time. It's only when it's needed. Um, dark green is for meters and tempo changes. But if there's a lot of both of those, I'll use dark purple. And if there's some <laughs> structural points or some, like if you're recording a piece and you have to make some like really structurally cut blocks um, or something like that, I will use dark purple for that as well. Yeah. And I write in all the harmony I, I always write them because I, I painstakingly play it on the piano and put in the harmony like as I play it and that helps me kind of structure the um, energy of the phrase and where the, what the phrase shape will be. Well like me uh, you use colors but you use a lot more different colors but again you're meticulous. I think uh, I'm, I'm assuming that the process of marking a score is 
uh, really helps you learn it. That's that's why why I do it. Um, the going through that process, I remember writing things in. I remember the physical action of writing things in or notes that you know. When it comes to performance, that you know, I know it's there. It's like an old friend. Um, it's like a Bible or a, or a, or a manual, you know, electric uh, electricity guide. You know, a circuit board. Um, uh, and and whilst you know, other conductors don't do this. Uh, what it proves is that we all have our own system and, and as long as we can stand up there on at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning uh, and at 7.30 on a Thursday night and do our jobs and we've got it in our head, it works, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what the system is. Well, I do have to say, last summer um, I meticulously studied this um, score and uh, was on a red eye to the orchestra rehearsal in the morning and at 2 o'clock in the morning I realised that I'd left the... Um, score in the seat pocket of the plane. Oh, God. Oh, oh no. That's a it, that, it for did. me, that would be a nightmare. Like, so, yeah. I went to the reception and, you know, luckily it was an IMSLP score, so I just printed it off and the librarians bound it in the morning. But, uh, and I, I very quickly just wrote a few pencil markings. Uh. But it showed me that, yeah, that process of, of marking for me helps it internalize and I actually don't really need it once once I've got that that visual image in, in my head to remember and, and then I can use a different score and it doesn't really matter luckily <laughs> well, well I mean that's that would be a nightmare for any of us who mark up our scores but as you've just said and it brings up another very quick point and I know some conductors have said this who who like us to varying degrees write things in a lot of them are, are rebuying their scores and starting afresh and when they do they write less in and maybe that's because like you and I when we do it the first time we write a lot in and it helps us learn it as you said you probably you could probably visualize what you'd written in on that red eye flight the next day with an absolutely clean score well yeah it's funny you should say it because um Schumann 3 is a work that I I've, I've got about three scores for have rewritten you know like or or just you know started afresh as you said yeah and uh, just finished uh, marking up the set of parts for the second time and it's been like a year since I looked at the parts and it took a, a lot longer this time to edit the parts because I changed my mind about so many things yeah. <laughs> and and so yeah that, I mean it shows like is there a perfect phrase to something well maybe mm. of course I mean it's not I, we're always yeah. attaining you're trying to find the best way possible and yes you said every orchestra is very different um but also maybe you mature as a musician over time and and that's a wonderful thing Gemma, it's 10 questions time so i shall start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate I love um, happy dogs barking. That's one of my favorite sounds. It makes me feel very happy as well. And um, I hate the sound of my alarm clock in the morning. <laughs> well, sorry then. <laughs> Seeing as you know, it's evening here and morning there. I, I, you know, I got you out of bed to do the interview. Yes, thank uh, you and, very much. And happy dogs barking. I think you're the first person to have said that. So um, brilliant answer. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Uh, I love um, hiking in the mountains. Uh, anything that has, it has a good view, I'd, I'd go pursue that. 
Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Uh, big fan of Carlos Kleiber. <laughs> I think he's really clear and um, his ideas are invigorating. It's, it's so exciting to see how, you know, he has this idea. It's so clearly portrayed and it's so natural and free at the same time. And, and I, I just um, really like his style. It's very elegant and strong. I laughed because his name just keeps cropping up, you know, probably once once every three episodes, maybe even more regularly than that. And I I had a message on Twitter saying from somebody very early on when the podcast started, are they all going to say Carlos Kleiber is their favourite composer <laughs> uh, And my answer back would be now, would you, even if they did, maybe it's proving a point that conductors seem to really like Carlos Kleiber, and maybe he was actually that good. You know, I mean, he's my choice as well. <laughs> but you know, why complain about it? Obviously, he he sticks out for us, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, if you watch the videos, you see how very clearly he presents his ideas, and then when you hear the pieces as well, they make so much sense, and you, I feel very moved by the performances. So, I yeah. I'm a big fan. Yeah, ditto. Uh, uh, the next one. Uh, a lot of people complain about this question. I don't know why, but they do. Um, and who would be a favourite current conductor? Well, I'm, I'm, I suspect that people complain because, you know, there are a lot of really good conductors of today and it's hard to choose because, uh, you know, how can you, um, how can you choose? But I, I mean, I, guess at the moment um uh i really admire andres nelson's um conducting and and i i think for the kind of same idea that he shows his ideas very clearly and um and i think as you said he's very fresh with and free when he's in performance um mm. and and i really find his ideas so exciting in uh, the way he describes it sometimes is just wow like I, I never thought of that and and it's such a natural idea and and it shows the orchestra exactly how to play it and just so simply and 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 then yes in the concert is electric and it's it's something new every night um and, and so i'm really inspired by that at the moment well i have to say i was lucky enough to play under him for five years or so and yeah, uh, some of, if not the most exciting concerts I ever played in. You know, and I joined the CBSO under Rattle uh, and did all of Sacramento's 10 years. Uh, so I was lucky enough to play for three incredible conductors. But I think Andrus's concerts, uh, he could take the orchestra to places that we didn't know we could go to. Um, it didn't always work. Sometimes we crashed His imagination. <laughs> yeah, it's a, imagination. And, <laughs> and at the time... You know, there was a real. Well, there was even when he left. Uh, there was a real trust uh, in. You know, if Andrew says we're going there, right, we'll go there. Then. You know, we'll, we'll have some fun and we'll do it. Um, nobody, nobody went kicking and screaming. It was yeah, absolutely amazing. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I would have to say um, Berio's Voci. It's a viola concerto. Um, right. There's two orchestral groups. Um, and one is about, I think, like 26 players who are all across the back of the stage as far as possible away in a semicircle and, and then an orchestra that's in front of you. But n there's no instruments placed in a, in a normal way. So um, and everyone has an individual line. And so um, there's a lot to manage and uh, and 
you have an organ in the middle, but you have three percussionists all separated. And then there's the viola soloist. And um, the score is notated in such a complicated fashion that you have to actually put bar numbers in and choose things. I was um, conducting with a baton with my right hand, but my left hand had to hold up um, numbers. Uh, based on you know certain points and uh, there's um, the idea of like it's a, a really interesting piece so you should go check it out mm. um, it's based upon Sicilian folk song and um, there is it, there's recordings out there which, which you can hear of like this raw passionate woman's voice singing these songs these dances and and the viola is now singing this, um, but and and this is like a mystical atmosphere of of the fact that there's the crowd and they're all different people. I mean, individual, unique human beings with these musicians. So I, he had a good concept in mind. It doesn't help that the notation um, is very complicated and also the parts don't really coincide. There's a lot of typos and bars missing and things like that. So you have to figure that out. But then the viola part repeats itself in a way that is very improvisatory but it's actually very hard to kind of go okay count one two three up to 23 and then boom, we move suddenly so you know, and it's free so you don't know how quick or slow you know it's going to go and it's it's a nightmare <laughs> you've just basically described a traffic cop with the hearing of a bat um, <laughs> who's, yeah. got, who's got about eight tentacles to hold up various, you know, numbers and letters. Um, yeah, though it sounds fascinating. I mean, I know having done his folk songs, uh, and I think there's a Sicilian folk song in that um, set he wrote for his wife, that yeah. the music is amazing. So I, I will go and look it up, um, definitely, uh, as I have with all of the hardest pieces, yeah. Um, what's weird is I think I'd do it again. <laughs> if I had the opportunity, because you know, you had to work so hard to to have it happen, and I, I'd just like to to have another go. <laughs> I, and I think the audience would enjoy the piece. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? A suitcase. <laughs> uh, that, that's a good cheat. Nobody's come up with that one. <laughs> but it's a good one. No, you know what I yeah, will yeah. tell you is um, maybe more <laughs> um, unique to me yes. uh, is that I have managed to lose a lot of things while traveling and right. I think I've got better but you know every time as I said I lost a score yeah. Yeah. that's not the first time I've done that um, and headphones are common occurrence um, computers phones and passports I have lost on travel uh, itineraries so uh, <laughs> multiple times as well luckily I um, I think maybe two-thirds of the items I do get back and and I'm getting better <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll let you off your, your answer of a suitcase because actually nobody else has come up with that answer. Um, and I'm, I can't remember whether the listeners know this or not, but the answers, pa passport, baton, phone, score, iPad, computer, whatever, are banned. Then uh, you're not allowed to give those answers. So a suitcase is the best get out clause I've heard yet and is immediately going on my banned list. So well done, Jenny. Right. <laughs> well done. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Uh, makes me laugh. Um, next one. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Uh, I mean, I, I think I would go with, um, I think it's 
really hard to strike a balance of um, personal life and work life as a conductor. And, um, and the idea that we are forever traveling and um, even if we have these orchestral families, it, it's not a tenured position. It's very like very free and on the go. And there's so many exciting things about that. I mean, mm. we have a creative mm. career and um, I, I'm always learning every day and seeing so many wonderful people and places and learning all this new repertoire. But I think it's also important to be grounded. And um, and so, I, I mean, what I would change is, is possibly, I, I don't have a solution, but finding a way to have a, a balance so that one can be more grounded as a conductor. Mm. That's a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, as you say, um, it's one of the, it's one of those grasses always greener things isn't it when you're on the road and you you wish to be back home um you know being grounded and, and having some time at home and then the minute you're at home you're thinking why am I not out there conducting in Buenos Aires or in Germany or in you know China or Japan why am I not out there flying around the world yeah it's what I, I wonder whether uh, all conductors are like that I know I am I get away you know I get away on a two or three week trip and think oh I really wish I was back home now. And then, you know, I get home and within two weeks, I wish I was back on the road again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get hot feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I love animals, so maybe I just um, start looking after puppies or something I don't know <laughs> um, or, or you know maybe go back into mathematics if, if I was going to be looking for for a professional career that's different but I, I mean I, I probably when I was younger and and I was 12 years old I made the decision I always wanted to be a part of an orchestra and that to me is is most important um, I'm so invigorated by it inspired by what orchestras do when they perform in harmony with with a message that moves people emotionally and transforms them in a positive way. So um, maybe, you know what, I just have a different job as being part of the orchestra. <laughs> Good. That's, a, 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 you know, having been uh, both sides of the fence, I think that's perfectly allowable. A, a player and a conductor, if there, if there is a fence, I don't think there is one, but a lot of people see one. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, being around orchestras is, is a wonderful privilege and joy. Final question. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I should start off by saying I'm very easy to please um, with <laughs> any kind of meal. But um, if I had a choice, it would be a roast chicken dinner and um, a piece of hot apple pie with a scoop of ice cream. And to wash it down? Oh, um, good cider, dry cider. Oh, now nobody's mentioned cider before. And uh, some wonderful answers, Gemma. Um, yeah, lovely cider, especially your, as you said, you're about to go into summer. Cider is a real summer drink for me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And there's <laughs> lots of good ciders in England. Yeah, loads, loads of good ciders. Um, the cloudy ones, the pear ones, the apple ones. Yeah, most of them are, are pretty darn good. Gemma, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you for the last hour. Um, I hope 
that we speak to each other soon in person and not an entire globe apart from each other. But it's been wonderful to chat to you and uh, thank you very much. Yeah, you too, Mike. It's been wonderful to get to know you a little bit more and, and I do hope to meet you in person. Hopefully very soon. You take care. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who started his musical career as a professional oboist, but after stints as assistant to both George Sell and Leopold Stokowski, he went on to have positions with orchestras in New Zealand, Australia, Malaysia, Japan, South Korea, the United Kingdom and his native Switzerland. He was also director of one of the world's most prestigious music festivals for six years. But until then, bye bye. <laughs>